Welcome to the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. This is a podcast about our relationship with food and eating, body image, eating disorder recovery, mental health, and more. I am your host, Lynn Thorstensen, a registered nutrition therapist and body image coach based in the West of Ireland. And I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. And today I'm here with Deirdre Redden, who is an eating disorder coach and a parent coach. And she works with both parents and individuals. And she also jointly runs online programs for parents affected by eating disorders, which she does with Susanna, whose second name I can't pronounce. Diavich. Diavich. Okay. Thanks, Deirdre, for asking me out there. And we will talk a bit more about that. And the two, Susanna and Deirdre's uh, joint work is under the banner of supported families. She is also an associate instructor with Youth Mental Health First Aid Ireland. And Deirdre is really passionate about on the topic of disordered eating and eating disorders. And I know this because we've had some conversations prior to this and the importance of educating and raising awareness around this complex and often misunderstood area. She is also passionate about supporting parents who are often the untapped superpower when a person is unwell. And she has delivered numerous workshops and webinars to both sporting and large commercial organizations and to healthcare professionals. So thank you so much for being here, Deirdre. I'm very excited about having this conversation today, actually. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Lynn. Yeah. So in a previous conversation that we had prior to recording this, you told me that being an eating disorder coach and working with young people and parents was not kind of your first career <laughs> that you had a previous career um so you know do you want to talk a little bit about how you kind of ended up in this space and how you come to do this work yeah no problem at all absolutely thank you and thanks for the opportunity to to chat to you today I'm looking forward to it too um, so, yes, in a past life, I used to work in banking. So I worked in banking for 27 years um, and uh, enjoyed that career, I have to say. Um, but uh, when my daughter was a teenager, she developed an eating disorder. Um, she developed anorexia and was very unwell for a number of years. Um, and thankfully is well now and is just about to head off to Australia, breaking all of our hearts in the process. <laughs> Um, but I guess during the time when she was unwell, um, I invested a lot of time in and energy and effort in kind of trying to support her, I guess, through her recovery. And um, I might touch a little bit later, maybe on kind of the lessons I learned and what I would mm-hmm. impart. Um, but when I left, uh, when I left banking, um, I suppose, I guess why I left banking really was when she recovered, she became a role model for me. She built the life she wanted for herself. Um, she 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 built the career she wanted. She had her friends and all the rest of it. And I guess I decided I, I wanted to build the life I wanted um, after going through something like that changes you, changes yeah. your perspective on life. I think it is one of the hardest things you can go through in life. Um, so I decided I wanted to do something different and I wasn't sure what the different was, but I remembered from my uh, banking career that uh, I was always really interested in people developing and mentoring and coaching people. I always managed large teams. So I retrained as a coach 
And I knew I kind of didn't really want to stay fully in the corporate world. I want I left for a reason. I wanted to change and do things differently. And then I was trying to figure out how would I what would I do with my coaching? And I guess the piece that always stuck with me was parents and how lonely and isolating it can be as a parent. And I remember having a coffee one day with um, somebody, a former colleague, and he said, well, think about what's different about you and what's unique about you as a coach. And for me, it was eating disorders, funnily enough, um, and coaching. So I trained in eating disorders um, and put that together with my coaching uh, to work initially with parents. So kind of bringing together, I suppose, my own skills and experience and then the technical knowledge that I had trained. Yeah. And I think that being able to bring in that lived experience gives a different depth of understanding, I think. And your lived experience as a parent of a child who's been unwell with an eating disorder. And I feel sometimes it's like you said, like it's a really lonely experience. And I wonder, like, when your daughter first got sick, like, what kind of resources or where did you sort of go looking for information? So I guess it's changing, I think. And actually, one of the one of the things I reread recently was one of the books that I used a lot when she was unwell was the new Maudsley book. Uh, it's a Janet Treasure book. So Janet Treasure is very well known in, in the field of eating disorders. And it was skills, like teaching parent skills. Um, and I suppose what I really liked about it was because it was using coaching conversations. So it sat very well with me as the same as my training. But the thing I remembered uh, when I looked at the book recently was there was a line in it that said eating disorders are relatively rare. And that is really changing. They're not relatively rare. They're far more common than people realize or understand. Um, so back then, I suppose, Lynn, to answer your question, that was that was a good few years ago now that she became unwell. Um, and there wasn't as much available information. I remember turning to Bodywise. They do have a lot of good information and resources for parents and professionals on their website. Um, but it you never quite know at the start what you're dealing with, you know, and often with eating disorders, they can come with other mental illnesses. So they often, very often coexist with anxiety. So sometimes you think, oh my goodness, if you can get support for the anxiety, maybe that will help the eating. Um, and, and it takes a while for parents really to realize or recognize what's actually going on. And I think that's yeah. one of the big challenges about eating disorders, like they are, um really complex illnesses yeah um they do have uh high mortality rates they're misunderstood people don't understand them but equally and what's really really important one of my key messages that i'd like to leave with you today people do recover people yeah. recover fully so there's always a message of hope um around yeah. them as well. that's so important i think both for for any like caregiver or parent or other support person with the person who's unwell but and also for the person themselves who are are living with with an eating disorder and is on that recovery journey that there is hope that it can actually be so so much better um yeah. but and you know like did you 
like did somebody give you that book and say here Deirdre okay you need to read this or did you have to like like did you have to go look for this yourself like how I suppose in your experience and I know we can talk about more like the work that you do now like what was the parents you your role as a parent in the say the the team that was supporting the your daughter and the young person so I would say um we were fortunate in a way eventually so it takes time it takes a long time to kind of get the right people um uh and it's a long journey um and you know really really important that if parents believe there's an issue and we'd have come to this maybe when we talk about you know early warning signs but the parents get the right professionals the appropriately qualified professionals um because eating disorders are complex um normal counselor and therapist training doesn't encompass eating disorders so it's so critically important you have a qualified person um on the dietitian or nutrition side like yourself lynn and that you have um somebody who's providing psychological support who um uh, who's appropriately qualified to. I can't stress that enough. I really can't. Yeah. Um, but in terms of our experience, we were lucky. Yeah, we were uh, we were involved to an extent, I guess. Um, and we were fortunate at the time that uh, she was under 18. So we could engage more with the treatment team. And I have really strong views on parents being involved when the individual is over 18 because... They don't just wake up one day and become a fully fledged adult when they turn 18. So parents really um, have such a key role to play, no matter the age of the loved one. I, I'm so passionate about that. Um, yeah. So we were lucky, I think, at the time, looking back. Um, I think yeah. things have improved. But again, there, there's a lot more that can be improved around involving parents, because, as you said in your introduction, like they're the superpower, they're the ally, they are the experts on the child. No matter what age the child is, the parents know more about the child than anybody else. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting you said it. And this has been partly my experience, particular in that uh, kind of space of somebody who's like 18 to maybe 21, 22, uh, because now they're mm -hmm. kind of like independent adults and that that is a different dynamic than with consent and communication with you know you know for me as a practitioner I don't have to communicate like my client is my client so it's between the two of us how we decide to communicate with the parents but often particularly if the person is fairly unwell they live at home so like it feels it feels to me that if that system can be tapped into as a resource for them even though they're no longer you know under 18 it feels a little bit like a missed opportunity and because if they especially if they live at home like the support network can be there just by proximity in in different like in ways that somebody who's maybe a bit older 25 30 or like not living living independently you might not have the same parental support system to tap into um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's what you've seen as well in your work. Yeah, I I, I agree completely. Um, you know, there, there's a perception sometimes um, from young people of, you know, that age group that you just referenced. I have to do this on my own. Eating disorder recovery is too bloody hard. <laughs> 
to do on your own. It really, really is. And there are days when you need that support. Um, so I think parents, you know, I always quote this statistic that there are 169 hours in the week. And if if your loved one is uh, receiving outpatient support, they're an hour a week with the therapist, maybe half an hour to an hour with the dietitian or nutritional therapist. That's a lot of hours at home if they're living at home. And if the parents aren't empowered and equipped to support the young person, um, it, it's very challenging. And, and realistically, it makes the job of the professionals harder because, you know, they don't there isn't somebody kind of reinforcing the messages or being supportive at home. And I think the concern that people often have, the key concern is the breach of confidentiality. And, you know, they're an adult and preserving the relationship um, between the professional um the dietitian nutritional therapist or the therapist but being honest they're you know involving the family in a safe way with full consent um in in supporting the young person can make such a difference and i suppose one of the things i would experience in my work is that it can be the language that we use mm. So sometimes as parents, we don't realize because how would we? We were never taught. We don't realize that the language we're using is triggering and is just creating anxiety or heightening the anxiety for the person. So mm. even I, I always give an example of working with the family a number of years ago and they had one um, one child who was recovering from anorexia and the other was in a larger body, slightly larger body. So every mealtime they sat at the table and they uh, asked one child to eat more, the other child to eat less. And the impact that was having on the young person recovering from anorexia. So helping the parents understand that impact and changing their language made a significant difference um, to the young person. And there's no breach confidentiality there. You're not... Uh, you're not unveiling any secrets or any concerns or anything that's shared in the therapeutic relationship. It's fully preserved. So I do feel really strongly about the yeah. parents. And I do think it's changing. And I think it's changing more in the US um, that parents are more involved. Um, and, you know, more yeah. of the same here, please. I think really. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I also feel sometimes like for the young person, particularly around that, like 19, 20, and, you know, when somebody is, I suppose, inverted commas, not too bad, like they're engaging in eating disorder behaviors, that's in an unhelpful way, but they're medically stable, maybe their weight isn't critically low, and they're maybe somewhat functioning, you know, they might be going to college a few days a week or, you know, but like, it's still a problem. And it feels sometimes like, some might think of some of some of the young people I worked with is like, well, I don't want to worry my parents. I should be able to do this by myself. And kind of also, and this might be my assumptions, also feeling like, well, we're supporting the our our son or daughter with, you know, they're getting therapy and they're going to nutrition professionals and they're getting the support. But it's like from where I'm sitting then, it's like, well, like all that space in between the sessions where they could possibly benefit with some structure to make the meals happen and you know making sure that the eating is regularly happening and not having so much like pressure that they have to do that by themselves because it's already hard like it's yeah. harder than it would be 
if they like if they didn't then they would be if they didn't have an eating disorder and I mean I don't know about you but like feeding ourselves can be challenging at times anyway just because of life but it just feels like right if this there was a bit of structure support provided at home even just to make the eating more consistent and take a bit of pressure off the the person having to you know cook for themselves or even sometimes they like to cook for themselves because that gives control but it's that kind of coconut yeah yeah and I just feel like oh right do we need to have a conversation about this maybe I'm thinking out loud I have somebody in my head I'm like maybe we need to have a conversation here should we bring the parents in for for a, a joint conversation of what does this level of support maybe that needs to be happened to take a bit of pressure off the young person's yeah I just it feels like for me like a lot to hold when you're already struggling that it just having somebody else supporting you making some of these things happen and the language that you talked about could just just give a bit more space for like the healing to occur yeah so that's kind of you know yeah and and yeah oh totally and I think some of it you know as I said earlier like lots of people don't really understand what disordered eating or eating disorders are um so we live in a culture where you know exercise is praised and rewarded um where healthy eating and I know you can't see me but I have air quotes (laughs) around healthy um is praised so we're kind of so for oftentimes people, when they start developing issues around food, um, everybody praises them. Oh, my God, you're looking great. You've lost weight. Um, you're eating more healthily. It's great that you're exercising so much. And I suppose the difference between kind of normal behaviors and eating disorder behaviors is the level of obsession and compulsion around the exercise, around the thinking about food. So, you know, I know you know this, but, you mm-hmm. know, people who struggle with their relationship with food could spend 80 or 90 percent of their day thinking about food like how lonely yeah. is that so again so we're not good at spotting the signs necessarily because of the culture we're surrounded by that's nobody's fault um yeah. it's just the language we've grown up with um and and how people talk about food um so a, a lot of the times in the work i do i i when i deliver corporate webinar webinars or to parents we always talk about food as a treat. Oh, you've been very good today. You can have an ice cream. Yeah. Why can't we go to the park? Why can't we go for a swim? Can we just change the language around food? So we've good foods and bad foods and we punish ourselves when we've eaten bad foods. So that makes the, I suppose that makes the landscape a little bit murky in terms of spotting the issue in the first instance. Yeah. Um, another kind of issue, I guess, would be there's a perception that eating disorders only affect white teenage females. Yeah. So speak to me about, I think both of those are really important things to talk about. So let's just come back to, speak to me about what are the early signs? Like if you were a parent listening to this and you have a, a young person or even an older young person what are the signs like when should you start kind of going maybe something isn't really right here because obviously you know puberty happens and it's like lots of changes and turmoil and you know gathering independence and like all of those like 
like that's normal and part of that phase of life but at what point or what are the things where as a parent you should be kind of like I'm not so sure if things are actually right so again I would say the first thing I would say to parents um is to listen to your gut you are the expert in your child you know if something is wrong so trust that and I guess around um it's really around the behaviors so again people perceive eating disorders or disordered eating even as being about food and they're not just about food yes they are about food but they're about other things too so has the behavior changed are they eating differently um so you know and again eating behaviors exist on a spectrum so you can restrict eating and overeat at the other end and at both ends And in the middle, you can have an eating disorder. So eating disorders don't discriminate. I think only 6% of people who have an eating disorder are underweight. So, and they increasingly are affecting men and boys as much as females, whether that's because it's become more visible or there's more awareness and acknowledgement around it, I'm not sure. But again, they're not female only. They do not only... Uh, you don't only have an eating disorder if if you're uh, significantly underweight. They can affect anybody. We can't tell by looking at somebody they have an eating disorder. So I think that's really important um, in terms of the misconceptions. And another misconception, just before I go on to the early warning signs, and maybe it ties back into what you were saying a minute ago about the parents. If you think about it, if a young person is getting support for another mental health issue, like anxiety or depression, they're experiencing anxiety or depression, They go and see the therapist and that's it. Yes, they do homework in between sessions. But you have to eat three times a day. You have to eat six times a day if you're um, suffering from an eating disorder. So parents don't understand, I think, the, the illness, the challenges. And again, there's no manual for being a parent of somebody who has an eating disorder. You really have to learn new skills and figure it out. Um, so that's important maybe just to highlight that in terms of the early warning signs it's changing behaviors around food um it's uh it can be anything really so there's no definitive list but some of the things um somebody starts healthy eating only eating low-fat foods um no longer eat their favorite foods so they say oh no i can't eat that now that's too fatty Um, They start making excuses. You know, I've eaten already. I won't have dinner. I had something um, after school. They start avoiding uh, social locations where there's food. So they might want to go to the cinema um, because the friends eat beforehand or get popcorn. Their mood changes. So, Mm. you know, they're much more withdrawn. um, They're less likely to go out with their friends. They can focus an awful lot more on how they look. So kind of body checking, seeking, particularly on the the restrictive end of the spectrum where somebody's under eating, um, asking constantly of their parents, am I fat? And again, as parents, we like to solve problems. So we say, oh, no, no, you're not. Um, And that's not that's not not all. That's not helpful necessarily. They can become really, really focused on sport. Um, so they can't see their friends because they haven't done their walk, their run, their gym. Um, so they're exercising for a long period of time. And then at the other end of the spectrum where somebody is overeating um, or is purging, so perhaps vomiting after meals, 
they're going to the bathroom after dinner, spending a long time in there, running the shower, um, brushing their teeth immediately after being in the bathroom. Food wrappers are being found in their bedroom. Um, food is going missing from the cupboards. But it's so food is only one part of it. There's something yeah. has changed in your child. They're withdrawn. Their mood is low. They're not going out with their friends as much. Um, and the foods that they used to eat and enjoy, the language around the foods has changed. Um, and they're much more focused on, you know, examining labels, reading calorie contents, all that kind of stuff, I think. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's like, and I suppose that's also, when you're saying that, that's like that coming back to that language piece again, to be sort of looking for these signs and not kind of feeding into praising that kind of behavior. It's great. You're so health yeah. conscious and it's great, you know, you're exercising or, you know, and I'm thinking as well, like stories that I've heard or read particular from maybe children or young people in bigger bodies and they're starting on their quote-unquote health journey by like changing how they're eating and exercising more and the praise that oh you're so great and it's like so good and then all of a sudden actually like they lose a lot of weight and they might still not be in that critical like what looks like severe underweight but for their body that's where they're at because they've lost a lot of weight in a short space of time and all the behaviors are mentioned sort of escalated and it's kind of like because of this distortion we have then around what eating disorders look like and what body should look like and the pervasiveness of thin ideology or thin obsession we have with thinness it's like it often gets missed even potentially more in in those in those people yeah. And, and you know this only too well yourself from your own work, but you can be just as malnourished in a larger body as in um, an underweight body. And, yeah. you know, I think this gets lost too. And, and one of the this when I deliver training as part of my youth mental health first aid work, one of the stats we share because it's for adults who support young people, the training. And one of the stats we share, which horrified me was that uh, 70% of young girls, this was the survey done in 2019, but 70% of young girls between the ages of 12 to 19 were either on a diet or trying not to gain weight. And yet, as we go through puberty and as we go through any hormonal change in life, we are designed to gain weight. That's how our body works. So putting young people on diets um, we're, we're kind of fighting against nature, I suppose, yeah. um, in, in some ways. So, you know, it's really important as young people go through puberty um, that their bodies, particularly girls, um, that their their bodies, uh, they do change and they do gain weight. And that's normal um, and natural. Um, so uh, we have to be really careful, I think, you know, and, and dieting, um, becoming vegetarian when there's no kind of when vegetarianism isn't prevalent in the family, it's not kind of, a, you know, an ethical stance the family have taken, which is perfectly fine. So it's anything kind of new or different. Uh, they really are uh, warning signs that um, we should be watching out for. Um, and, and children not gaining weight or, or losing weight at particular times in their life um, yeah. is, is, that's really important. And I suppose the other kind of key point maybe 
to stress about eating disorders. They're very, as I said at the start, they're complex and they're often it's a perfect storm of lots of things coming together. Um, yeah. So not everybody is vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Uh, but for those who are vulnerable, who have that maybe genetic vulnerability, who have kind of the psychological character trait or personality traits in being very high achieving and, and uh, very driven and environmental triggers, the people who are susceptible um, dieting can often be um, the pathway, you know, and I would yeah. hear, as I'm sure do you, people whose mums took them to Slimming World when they were children. And again, that never comes from a position of harm um, no. because the parents feel that that's the right thing um, because in a society we do blend weight and health. Um, yeah. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. And that's like a whole other conversation. But I could think that like, and also like the, the like what you just said there, like it's often doesn't come from it from a place of harm. It's like, these are the beliefs that we picked up from society. And I think, Sometimes as well, when maybe the parents have lived experience of being in a larger body and weight stigma and maybe bullying and other things that comes with that, why would you not want yeah. not want that for your child and trying okay. to do that? But that's the difficulty in then trusting our children with their bodies and also trusting ourselves with our own bodies that they are infinitely wise and they know what to do and our job is just to take care of them take care of them and not manipulate them so um there was something so say now right if you're starting noticing that ooh, maybe there's something going on here my child and all of a sudden they're vegan and then like this sort of out of the blue where I'm like they don't want to eat their favorite foods anymore or they're just you know starting to go on for long walks and you're just feeling like something isn't right. Like then, where do you go as a parent? Like, what are you going to do then? Like, what's the what's the next thing that needs to happen? Or you know, yeah. Um. So the the piece just about kind of the parents always trying to do the best thing for their their children. Um. Sometimes as parents, we feel you know, uh, such guilt which we shouldn't because really important as well to stress the parents don't cause an eating disorder. The individual doesn't choose it. It's a very complex um, interplay of lots of different things, as I just said. So they're nobody's fault. Um, and years ago, there was a theory that it was the parents' fault. It's not. So parents do will feel guilt. Um, they will feel terror and fear. Um, and they'll feel, oh, my goodness, did I do things wrong in the past? But it's only as, you know, I, I always use this Maya Angelou quote, when we know better, we do better. Yeah. So when we learn, um, so the behaviours or the things that we thought were a good idea in the past, we learn. So there's no manual. We're learning as we go. Um, so I think parents have to be really kind to themselves um, around stuff they may have done in the past because it came from a position of love. Nobody ever sets out to harm. So I just yeah. think that's really important just to um, stress that. So in terms of kind of where do you go? Um, I would say certainly no harm to um, read, look up online. You know, there, there um, we have information on our Support Families website. BodyWise also are a good resource. But typically the first port of call is the GP because the GP is really the pathway into mental health services um, in Ireland um and again i suppose back to what i said earlier about the 
the parents or the expert and their child, you know if there's something not right. And if the GP is telling you, oh, no, they're fine, there's nothing wrong, trust your gut and push a little bit harder because yeah. all GPs, there's some great, fantastic GPs out there and we were lucky we had one. Um, but uh, not all GPs understand eating disorders. So, yeah. Don't 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 rest if you're if you're not concerned. And another protocol, Lynn, would certainly be somebody in your profession um, who has an understanding of uh, nutrition and can kind of because, again, somebody who um, somebody who has developed a distorted relationship with food will have. I always describe it. It's like war and peace. You know, they'll have this big book of food rules. Um, or somebody described they're going around with the backpack on their back with all this stuff I must I should yeah and it's all wrong because it's not coming from the right place so sometimes in the early stages and again I can't stress enough it is getting support from somebody who understands the area and has enough training um, but even just the re-education piece I can can be helpful in terms of going through nutrition with somebody and helping them to understand what they actually need to fuel their body um, every day. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's, and as you know, like it's so for a young person, again, their brain is still developing and growing and you need about 500 calories a day just for your brain. Yeah. So, you know, if you're, if you're not taking on board the right food, there's an impact yeah. in terms of your cognitive abilities too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the kind of piece as well where, you know, when you were you were saying like dieting can often like there's it's not the only piece, but like there's multifactorial, but it can be that piece that sort of opens the door for this trajectory of into disordered eating and maybe even a full blown eating disorder. And for some people, it's that drop in weight that is signaling to their body like something is off. And then for some people, this is where the eating actually gets harder. Whereas for most people, like how we technically should work, is like if we don't get enough food, once the food becomes available, available, we'll eat yeah. more. And that seems like binge eating, which it can turn into. But it's kind of like, you know, that's how we sort of that's but for some people, it doesn't function that way and it gets harder and the food obsession and the thinking and the anxiety and all those are starting to snowball as the weight are dropping. And you sent me this really great article and I will link to this in the show notes as well. Um, but somebody, Emily, what's her name? Boring. 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 Yeah. And talking about her own lived experience and how bringing the weight set point or baseline up so that there is a buffer for somebody that has this experience that if they, and I've seen this with some of my clients as well, like if they had just like a tummy bug for a couple of days and they even just, dropped like a few pounds not a lot but because they're on very close to that threshold all of a sudden all the sort of like eating disorder behaviors or thinking is starting to ramp up again and they know like once they're kind of getting back on consistent eating and eating enough life just feels a bit more easeful you know they're not as anxious anymore than like it's just they have more capacity and it's just yeah. it continues to build build that buffer. And she talks about like weight um, recovery set points and like that sometimes they're 
like within the hospital setting which is great to save lives but like it's, it's sometimes it's a, yeah. it's not enough and i think and again going back to what we spoke earlier about particularly with people in higher weight bodies or kids or young people in bigger bodies it's the body that has that reference point so that that cannot be determined outside of that which is why sometimes people look at growth charts and where the person was tracking before the eating disorders to get up to what looks like their seems to be a normal baseline for that particular individual yeah. and I, I just think that's so like it's so fascinating that there's such a big part of physiology as part of this also mental illness absolutely and I think you know one of the things about this area and we could talk forever like it's the science is evolving all the time and there is sort of a school of thought now that you know there's a metabolic component to it um as well so um for some people as you said it's just triggered physiologically it's just when the weight goes you know so you an eating disorder can develop without any not that they're ever a choice but you know that somebody hasn't started dieting or anything like that it's just purely metabolic yeah so um so that's just so important in terms of recovery um as well that it's not the minimum weight it has yeah i think that's Absolutely. And I feel as well, like for the person who's living with the like with the eating disorders, I continue to reinforcing that because sometimes like people get that message and that becomes the eating disorder picks up that message. So this becomes the 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 minimums become becomes the top ceiling because that's really comfortable for the eating disorder. But like that's still keeping people kind of stuck there in that sort of semi recovery place. And, and, you know, unfortunately, again, um, which is why I suppose, you know, the work that you do in the early science is like the, the sooner people get intervention and the sooner that weight and the psychological support can happen, the higher the chance of full recovery and the shorter, I think, the trajectory as well. But when people then get sort of in that semi, well, they're kind of functioning, but but like they're thinking about food a lot and it's just it kind of gets stuck there and it, it's like well this is how I am and this you know it becomes more sort of I suppose embedded in people's personalities and it's just it's like it feels like there's more to come if you keep going um but the support to to do there I think is it's just too too hard and too much to ask somebody to try to do that all by themselves totally and it is so worth it and the one question I am always asked by parents is you know where are we on the recovery journey and full recovery is is certainly worth holding on for and and keeping going for and I guess back to kind of the the question you asked about where do you go for help and sometimes you know parents can be reluctant to seek help there's still a lot of stigma um, Mm -hmm. and for for boys and men you know it's a mental health illness and it's perceived to be a female illness it's huge stigma for them too Um, and again that's probably a, a whole other topic um, but there's a lot of stigma around it um, and parents sometimes might think, ah, you know, it's just anxiety around the leaving search and it'll all be fine when the leaving search is over and, and maybe it isn't. So I would always say to parents, check it out. Like, what is the worst that can happen? What harm have you done by checking it out and there isn't a problem? Yeah. So having a conversation with the GP, speaking to somebody you know having a consultation with qualified professional like yourself or myself and just even to kind of talk through what's going on in your head and get a steer 
Um, we do run an early warnings uh, webinar as well, but just informing yourself. And if you're wrong, there's no harm done. There really yeah. isn't. And and the other piece, you know, which we kind of touched on when we were talking about that article, um, eating disorders are very unique in lots of ways. And unfortunately, one of the ways that they're particularly unique is the medical risk that can come with them. So when you're not feeding your body appropriately, and again, you cannot feed your body appropriately in a smaller body or a larger body, um, it, it, it can have medical consequences. It can affect your brain um, and, and it can have other, it can have serious consequences. And I don't want to be um, upsetting people by going into them, yeah. but it is so important uh, that that medical, and that's why the role of the GP is important too, that there is medical oversight or there is a medical checkup um, because somebody who becomes extremely underweight, their heart is at risk. And these, again, because people don't understand about eating disorders, these are the things that come and hit you out of left field. You know, I used to always say it's like it's the gift that keeps giving because there can be potential side effects. Now, again, in the interests of, you know, remaining positive, a lot of those impacts can reverse and reverse significantly, very significantly with recovery. So the message of hope is really, really important. Yeah. Um, but the longer that somebody is suffering, potentially the more damage uh, that, that can be caused to the body. So it is, you know, fertility impacts as well. So it's so important that we check um, something out early. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's where, like when young people are unfortunate to end end up on this kind of path, they might be lucky enough to have their parents still there keeping an eye out to be getting on top of it. Whereas if you develop an eating disorder later on in life, it might be even more lonely because there's nobody else necessarily sort of picking up on it in the same same way. So but, but equally Lynn, sorry, like yeah. I, you know, I have worked with mums whose children are in their 30s and the mums are trying to figure out how can they best support them? So the support is still there. It might be different. They might live with the parents, but the parents still are trying to do their best to support um, their loved one. And sometimes these are people who maybe are semi-recovered, as you've described it. And yeah. all the parents want for them is, you know, them to have the opportunity to live life to the fullest. And there can be reluctance on the part of the person because they feel this is as good as it's going to get. Um, but there is still hope for further recovery. So you will often have, I suppose, parents sitting in the wings, just waiting to kind of try and, and help support. I, yeah. I has, That has been my experience on a number oh, of That's occasions. so wonderful to hear that, I think, because that's really important too. And just mean that, yeah, if you're not 16 or 18, it doesn't mean that you don't deserve support or that you can't asking for, you know, family support. And that just makes me curious as well, Deirdre, like I know you work with families and we think about like families, you know, the parents or caregivers of the young person. But like you just talked about just like a different experience there. So when it comes to like partners or um, other people, like in the particularly if we're talking about somebody who's a bit older, um, like do you do you do you support those those people as well? Yeah, so so there's a great expression. Um it's not mine, um, that having an eating disorder in the family is like a bomb going off. So it impacts everybody, not just the person. 
So it impacts the parents. It, if if somebody's older, um, it impacts uh, the partner, the husband, wife, and it impacts the siblings. So there, you know, and again, we we just these are the things we don't think of, I suppose, really. Um, and you know, so for the sibling, it can be that the parents are just so focused, understandably, on supporting their the the, the person who's affected by an eating disorder. Um, the siblings can be well, they feel like they're not getting a lot of attention, but they have their own fears and worries and concerns. And then they don't want to burden the parents with those because they can see that the parents are overloaded um, as it is. And the partner relationship is different, but again, the impact is still significant. So yes, I have worked with partners and um, siblings um, as well. Um, and, you know, it, it can it's helpful for everybody when, everybody gets support. So it's, you know, you're, so for, for parents or partners or siblings, um, they're supporting themselves, but they can also um, enhance the support they're already providing to their loved one by understanding more about the illness. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about support as well, particular as a parent, um, and even like when you're sort of coming out the other end of it and you've done this sort of intense work around, refeeding and supporting them and and you know making it through and the young person is like well on the road to recovery like in your experience as a parent then like what kind of like support after like you've made this true and the impact is had and the change is had on you as as a person and maybe other family members like what can that sort of like support look like like as in I'm thinking about like processing the experience that everybody just had and obviously it is different for each person in the family system that the impact is hard on them um so yeah can I speak to that yeah so as I said at the start like it is one of the hardest things you will go through um as a parent undoubtedly because it's exhausting um it is emotionally and physically exhausting it's all you think about um your, because food is such an integral part of our lives. Like one of the pieces of advice, um, we we attended a new Maudsley workshop um, way back. And one of the pieces of advice, we and it was really helpful. Um, and one of the pieces of advice, of advice that I now uh, advise parents is not to talk about food or weight or body image at the dinner table. And I never knew how much we talked about food until we couldn't. Um, so, uh, so it's exhausting because, you know, you're, you're putting your game face on before dinners, you're worried, are they going to eat? Um, and then when they do get to a point and it's a long journey, unfortunately, um, you know, and there are bumps along the way and the bumps are actually a good thing because I suppose, as I always describe it, the bumps are telling you that the toolbox isn't quite full and the tools that the person needs to manage the bumps in life. Um, is not fully functional. So there's something that needs to be topped up or it needs to be looked at. Uh, so we learn from the, the bumps along the way. Um, so all so you're going through all of that process. Um, it's all going on. I remember somebody saying to me at the, again at that workshop, I think, you know, self-care. And I was like, what? How can I look after myself? I have to look after her. But actually, and it's really important um, that that you do that. 
And as you go through the recovery process, then there comes a point exactly as you've said, where they're beginning to fly. And it's so wonderful because they come back to who they were and you can see them. It's like they're coming out of, you know, whatever they've been in. So their personality is reemerging, who they are. And I get that feedback from parents all the time. We had another piece of feedback yesterday and it's just wonderful yeah. um, just to see the young person going on and living their life. But for the parents, you know, and again, I always describe it, it's like a tightrope, you know, you're kind of, you're empowering the young person because a lot of it is about empowering them. A lot of recovery is about empowering them. But you're also kind of still giving them support and making sure they don't fall off the tightrope. And for parents, it can be really hard to step back. And to trust the recovery, that can be so hard for parents because you're so focused on it. You're doing you have no power over recovery, but you can support it. And um, so there's a lot for parents. Yeah. So I think I would say myself, I was probably burnt out when I look back in it now. So I I also now coach mums whose uh, children are at that point in recovery. Um, but the mums have kind of lost themselves because they have to vote and dads. In fairness, yeah. sorry, it just so happens recently. I've been, it's mums I've been working with because the dads play such a key role as well. They have different strengths often to bring to it. Um, but you lose yourself because it just becomes it's all consuming and overwhelming yeah. when you're going through it. So it's really important. Um, self-compassion is so important yeah. um, that you you kind of look after yourself as you go through this. And it might feel like, oh, my goodness, how can I manage that? But it's so important that you do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for it's good for me to know as well to be sending people your way to to do that to yeah, like you said, I can just imagine like that it's so it just takes up every space of of everyone's life and then you get to a point, well, how are we gonna navigate out of this now? And also what am I going to do with all my my free time as a parent yeah. and you know yeah. and also like it makes totally sense if you know you're coming out of that and feeling quite burnt out as well and yeah. you're navigating you know self-care and basic self-care uh, as well but as was also having support through the process so that as a parent you can stay the course too yeah and it's you know and and again um, and like they will, the young people kind of just move on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and it's like never happened, you know, in lots of cases, they just put it behind them, which is amazing is um, and fantastic. But for the parents, it's harder to do that because it, it, uh, it, it is still kind of so um, it's so prevalent. Um, and I guess, too, you know, for, for the going through the process piece and, and uh the work that Susanna and I do, we support parents across all of the recovery process. So really from the very early warning signs to the other end, you know, when you're kind of trying to get your life back, um, I guess, and, and teaching skills, helping parents understand that the recovery process uh, can unfortunately be longer than maybe we would like, but also helping parents to recognize that there are small things, small good things that happen along the way. Um, and again, you know, as humans, we tend to focus on the negatives. That's how our brains are wired, unfortunately, and we lose sight of the little positives. So it's so important to keep up the motivation for parents as well and to recognize that, OK, you know, there may still be behaviors there, but yes, there has been small pieces of progress. 
So I always suggest to parents that they have a little review every week and just write down the positives. And then if there's a bad day or a bad week, they can see that actually, do you know what? There has been little, little positives. Yeah. Because the, the 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 illness doesn't appear overnight, even though sometimes it might feel like it does. So it does take time to unwind it, I suppose. That's, yeah, that's yeah. True. And it takes often longer than you than you think. Um, yeah. And I but just... there are wins along the way. And I think like we have to really focus on that. You know, there, there really are. And things that you never thought you would ever do again, like eating out in a restaurant or they're all possible. Yeah, it's just... And and I think as well for yeah for everybody involved in the recovery process, like remember that because like nothing is linear. It's not like a straight line upward. It kind of goes forward and sort of back a bit. And just seeing that oh the trajectory over time is still moving forward. Um. So yeah, remembering those things that are, you know, that that were working well or that were possible, and maybe it's just like a little backtrack. But it's like it's coming back on. But I just think it's. I'm so glad we had this conversation, Dirter, and like that I know you and, and Susanna are out there and like the work that you do to support parents in this way. I think they should be they should be cloned all over the place because I think it just it feels like yeah, it's a really powerful part of of support. And and like you said at the beginning, it's like this untapped resource that is there within most family systems with the support um with the sort support being available and also like the kind of education that you guys do in like just even simple things can be helped that can really take a lot of you know like changing the language and things like that that can make such a big difference um, and even yeah ab- absolutely and again you know and parents sometimes feel um oh but I don't have an eating disorder why should I get support or I don't have time for this or all my money is being spent on. Unfortunately, our system, our services are far from perfectly equipped and really not so for eating disorders. So, you know, we have to acknowledge that a lot of parents have to seek help privately, which is not very far from ideal. And again, eating disorders don't discriminate in terms yeah. of um, people's economic or financial well-being. Um, but parents will often say, oh, you know, but I'm focused on getting the child therapy or the dietitian because often you need both for the reasons we've talked about before. Um, so the parents would feel, well, you know, oh, no, sure, I shouldn't be doing this. But actually, there's two reasons I think why you should. <laughs> One is um, there is evidence to suggest that the recovery process is accelerated if parents get support, too. Um and the second one is there is a high level of clinical anxiety and depression amongst caregivers who support somebody for an eating disorder. So, again, that's proven. So you can actually be far more efficient <laughs> time wise. Um, so I we ran a, a webinar on Monday night on autism and eating disorders, which, again, is another day's conversation. Mm. But, you know, there are links from a mum and she said she learned more in our webinar than months of reading books. Powerful. So there is a time efficiency piece. As I mentioned at the start, it's such an isolating condition because you don't like talking about it. Parents feel they want to preserve their child's privacy um, so they don't talk to anybody about it. So getting support in a group setting, either one-to-one or group, 
helps you find your tribe. You find parents who are walking the same journey, who understand the language and they understand the challenges. And having, I suppose, the one thing I would say I've learned too is like a lot of it is kind of good parenting tips. And again, when we have a child, there's no manual that arrives in the post <laughs> telling you how to do everything. But even just learning how to kind of manage our own nervous system, how to manage our own anxieties so that we're not, they're not feeding off our anxieties, showing to our loved ones that we're caring for ourselves so that because if you think about it, somebody with an eating disorder isn't caring for themselves, not doing it deliberately, but there's no self-care. So even role modeling all those behaviors, yeah. so, like it is so important. And parents are the ones that love their child the most and they will do yeah. anything for their child. So equipping and empowering parents is so, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, so important. Um, no, I think so. And and I think I loved as well how you brought in that you know, even for the older child. And of course, you know, as long as our parents are still around, um, we are somebody's child. Um, and as a parent, I'm not a parent myself, but like as somebody who is a parent, I'm sure you always be a parent, even if, you know, your kids are, are 60 or 70, you know, you're still a parent. So, um, and also knowing that it, it, it's not just for young people where it's worth getting some support for yourself. Okay. If yeah. you're, even if you have a, um, a child who's in their late twenties or thirties struggling with an eating disorder, it's still worth getting some support for yourself to be able to be better equipped to support them. Um, and even just, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Knowing, you know, so we always say too, like, and you will know this too, Lynn, you know, we talked earlier about early warning signs and, you know, spotting that there's something not right um, in your young person. And the key thing about an eating disorder is that it's a functional illness. It serves a purpose for the person. It does something for them. So they are not going to say, oh, yeah, I know I have a problem. I'll definitely get help. Um, at the first time you raise a concern with them. So it's all about planting seeds. It's all about kind of letting them know that, you know, something's not right, doing it very gently, very calmly, not making it about them, but talking about what you've noticed. And also planting seeds for hope, for recovery, for your hopes and dreams for that person. And as somebody who's a parent of an adult, you can still do all of that. You can still plant the seeds and getting support and getting the language maybe to use in terms of kind of how you raise those concerns uh, with your loved one can be really helpful. But also it's the piece exactly as you said earlier about processing it for yourself, managing the emotions. Like one of the, honestly, I firmly believed at the start of all of this that like if I worked hard enough, if I invested enough time, I could fix this. But I couldn't. I could support and I did, but I couldn't fix it. So as parents, you know, we want to fix things. So it's hard. That's a hard part of the process too, knowing that we can support them, but we can't do it for them. Yeah. And learning how to support them, I suppose, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And ho having sometimes that's why like that therapeutic space for oneself is like having somebody to like process that all the feelings that comes up with like the out of control that you can't fix it for them. Yeah. But also at the same time, like the work that you do giving the parents or the caregivers support in all the things that they can do 
that are helpful and that are within their control and that are really supportive for their their loved one that is struggling so yeah I think it's been like thank you so much I really really enjoyed this and learning more about kind of the work and yeah we could probably have a whole separate conversation about the lack of support um unfortunately but and the privilege that is needed for unfortunately for a lot of people to pay privately um or you have to meet an awful lot of criteria and wait a long time to get uh, support within the system and that that's a whole other conversation but I would love for us to close something that I like like asking all my guests is we talked about nourishment and support and I'm curious for you Deirdre what does joyful nourishment mean to you and what's your favorite way of joyfully nourishing yourself um so for me um I would say I thankfully have never had um, issues with food. So uh, making sure I nourish my body appropriately um, to enable me live the life I want to live is very important um, for me. Um, and then a part, so I suppose it's kind of mind and body really, isn't it? So um, when I rebuilt my life uh, after I left banking, um, I went back to the piano. So uh after a long, very long number of years. So I find that really nourishing, um, really enjoy that um, and really enjoy I see swim. I'm fortunate enough to not live so far from the sea. So that's something I started doing the last few years ago, which I just find amazing for mind um, and body. Uh, and exercise is important to me. So I'm active. I, I really like being outside and making time for being outside and it's so important for the parents I work with too just to make the time like you can you can kind of shift shift your your mindset your nervous system how you feel by even just a 10 minute walk you know even the small little things and being outside and then I love reading um as well reading more so than watching tv um, yeah yeah I'm probably a bit like that like uh, we don't have a tv in our house but um my partner loves movies. So since we got together, I've seen more movies probably the last four <laughs> years than I saw in the last 10 previous, I think. But uh, for choice, I'd probably go with the book before something on a screen. Yeah, so, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So thank you so much. And where can people find you if they want to go and look at all the amazing work that you do and that you and Susanna offer as well? Yes, so it's www.supportedfamilies.ie. So I suppose just to mention, um, Susanna is a clinical psychologist, certified eating disorder specialist and family therapist. So we kind of bring the professional and the personal together, um, I guess, in terms of uh, our experiences. And we we're running an autumn webinar series at the moment. Um, our next one is next Monday night on body image. And then we run a monthly support group and uh, we will be relaunching um, a group program that we run early in the new year, which is equipping parents with the tools um, and skills that they need, because it's a great unknown for parents, you know, and, and it's just learning how to try things with confidence. Actually, that's one of the final things I would say. So for parents, they feel like they're walking on eggshells. They don't know what to say. Everything they say is wrong um, and they become terrified to say anything at all. Yeah. So, you know, giving parents the confidence um, to proactively support their lo loved ones, I suppose, is kind of why we do what we do. Um, Brilliant. 
Yeah, thank you. And I will I will link to that in the show notes and a few other resources that we also mentioned throughout. So again, thank you so much, Deirdre. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Lynn. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Joyful Nourishment Podcast is produced with no financial backing and your support means a lot to keep this project going. If this episode has been helpful in any way, please consider liking, subscribing or leaving a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. This helps the podcasts to be found by others. And of course, you can also forward this episode to a friend whom you think may benefit. Find out more about what I offer on straightforwardnutrition.com. And if you're interested in working with me, please use the link in the show notes to book in for a free initial 30-minute session. And finally, please come and join the Joyful Nourishment community over on Substack unless you're there already by subscribing to my newsletter using the link below.